All right, if you have your Bibles, let's go to the book of Genesis chapter 3. You know, I suppose there are a few fundamental questions that are important to be answered in life. Uh, certainly one of them is uh, why are we here and, and, and how did we get here? And I think Genesis chapter 1 and 2 hopefully pretty clearly and directly answer that question how did we get here? Well, God created us, God designed us, God put us on this planet. And one of the primary reasons above all else that we are here on this planet really isn't even just to enjoy our life and existence here, but it is to engage in a living relationship with God and to have fellowship with God who created us, that we would know our creator and that we would live in an intimate relationship with him. We see that was his design from the beginning, fellowship and relationship between God and man. And then, of course, God created for Adam, Eve, and human companionship and that deep and intimate relationship that exists there between them. And, and I think one other important question, another thing in life is why are we the way that we are? And I think Genesis chapter 3 answers that question pretty clearly. In fact, this is such a foundational and fundamental passage of Scripture. It's our understanding of Genesis chapter 3 that really lays a basis for our understanding for the rest of the Bible. If we didn't have Genesis chapter 3, uh, we wouldn't quite grasp and understand the redemptive story that God is laying out before us, pointing us ultimately to the solution in his son Jesus Christ that we have throughout the remainder of Scripture. It's the understanding of what happened in the Garden of Eden and in Genesis chapter 3 to you and I who were connected really to Adam who was in a sense a, a federal head of all of humanity. He was the representation of the human race and therefore we've inherited everything from Adam. Romans 5 tells us that sin entered the world through one man and death through sin and therefore sin and death have spread to all men and therefore we inherit by nature what we've all received originally from Adam. That is that we are not just sinners by practice, we are sinners by nature. That we're born that way. We're born separated from God. We're born spiritually dead. We only prove the fact that we are sinful by our practice as we live out our lives. And Genesis chapter 3 gives us great fundamental understanding in regards to really why is it that we all, if we were honest, struggle the way that we do, whereby we find ourselves always inclined to do what's wrong rather than to do what's right. I don't know about you, maybe I just got some good genes that I inherited from my parents, no personal offense since they're here, but I magnetically am drawn always to say the wrong thing and to do the wrong thing and to act the wrong way. And typically that is my natural inclination to behave incorrectly rather than correctly. Well, why is that? Again, the word of God answers that question because by nature... The Bible says we all like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. And again, Adam was perfect. Let's not forget that as we come into Genesis chapter 3 tonight. Adam was perfect in his creation. He was the most intelligent, brilliant individual possible. There were no flaws. There were no deficiencies in his intellect. He couldn't blame things on his environment. There was nothing wrong with his environment. He couldn't say, well, if you knew what neighborhood I grew up in. That's why I behave the way I do, or that's why I acted up. And he couldn't pull the victim mentality card, which sometimes people do. Adam was in a perfect environment. He had perfect fellowship. He had a perfect spouse, everything you could ask for. And he still 
transgressed, Adam and Eve still chose to disobey against God. And ultimately, that, in a sense, as I said, is inherited now by us, who are all really just the heirs and the offspring from the first two individuals who are on this planet who have given birth to all of us here. So, again, remember God creates Adam He then designs Eve, and remember God, even before he created Adam, or before he created Eve, excuse me, put Adam into this paradise garden where everything was wonderful. And remember, the Lord, it says, put him in the garden of Eden. He gave him something to do, to tend and to keep it. And God gave Adam that one prohibition of every tree, he says, of the garden you may freely eat, Genesis 2, 16 and 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it, God said, you shall surely die. Again, God gave a a conditional command to man, offered him everything possible for his pleasure and enjoyment. God wasn't holding back of everything you may freely eat, enjoy everything. But yet God gave one command so that there was an opportunity for choice. Again, God created us in his image. That is, we are free moral agents. We have the capacity to choose. And because God wants a love relationship, a meaningful relationship, God had to design an opportunity for man to choose to want to be in relationship with God. And so therefore, it wasn't a trick or a trap. God designed something and he said, look, you may enjoy everything, but of this one thing, I ask that you honor my authority, that you don't break my command, and that you keep away from this, because in the day you eat of it, God says there will be a consequence. You shall surely die. Well, of course, we see now ultimately what takes place as the result of Satan or the devil, that fallen angelic creature which God created was perfect in beauty and wisdom, the Bible says. Satan or the devil, Lucifer as we know him by many different names, was this perfect created angelic being, a high-ranking angel among the heavenly realms. And yet he himself, in pride and rebellion, falls from his position of glory And we now see him entering into the garden with a direct attack upon mankind to destroy the fellowship that existed between God and man. Now again, if you're not familiar, you might want to jot in your notes, Isaiah chapter 14 as well as Ezekiel chapter 28 are two chapters that give to us description regarding the fall of Satan or the fall of the devil. Uh, where he once was and what his position was among the high-ranking angels and how he was lifted up in pride. And Isaiah 14 gives us those I will statements. Of course, the one we know the most often is where Satan himself actually said before he was cast down out of heaven from his position, then became a unclean spirit or a fallen spirit or a demon himself, a supernatural being that is turned away from God. He said, remember, I will be like the Most High. Now, here's something that has always been curious to me. Was Satan in his pride and jealousy saying, I will be like the Most High, in the sense that he wanted God's status, and he wanted God's position, and therefore he was wanting the glory. God said, I share my glory with another. And was it that he was saying, I will be like the Most High, in the sense that he wanted to be like God. He wanted that glory. He wanted that admiration and that worship that all of the heavens gave to God, and that man was intended to give to God, and therefore he was jealous of that, possibly. I think certainly there's definitely credence to that. But I also can't help but to wonder, and maybe it's not a, 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 
or thing, one or the other. Maybe it's an and thing. I also wonder if maybe when he said, I will be like the Most High, if there also wasn't a measure maybe of jealousy towards mankind. Because remember, when God created man, he said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. And I can't help but to wonder, as mankind, Adam and Eve, we were God's crowning creation, a special trophy, unlike anything else in God's created order, that we were created in God's likeness and in God's image, and that when Satan saw this, something distorted in his heart, in jealousy arose over what special prominence and glory God gave to man. And he said, no, 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 I will be like the Most High, not these creatures of dust on this ball of dirt, them, I I will be like the Most High, and that maybe there was a jealousy of mankind in what existed between God and man, and therefore the devil, as the result of that, after his fallen condition, what's interestingly his first immediate line of attack? Mankind. He goes directly after man and wants to make man fall from his high-ranking position and to diminish and ultimately destroy the fellowship that existed between God and man. He wants to disrupt that. Could be either or, or it could be both in a combination. But here we now see Satan in his fallen condition. We see his first appearance in Genesis chapter 3 in the Bible. And this is also the first time that we hear the devil's voice in the Bible. Now, I'm not, you know, one of these distorted people that likes freaky movies or horror flicks, and, and, but, but nonetheless, the devil's voice is something that we should know because it's something that we need to learn how to identify and ignore in the same way we should know God's voice, and that's something that we need to listen to and obey. And here's the first time in the Bible you find Satan's voice. The way he talks, what he says, what some of his angles and approaches are. And here we see his first efforts to disrupt the relationship between God and man. Look with me in verse 1. It says, now the serpent, which we know again from Revelation 12, Revelation chapter 20, there in the book of Revelation, it directly connects the term serpent to the devil or to Satan. So we know this is just a, a inference to the devil himself, that somehow he was embodying something One of the creatures, again, was this a serpent in the sense of a snake like we know it or some type of dragon-like creature? Well, again, we we can only guesstimate on those kind of things. But, again, the the idea, the idiom, somehow Satan as a spirit embodied something in order to communicate to Eve in a way whereby there was dialogue happening between them. And, again, the the Bible tells us that Satan can masquerade even as an angel of light and, and that he can represent himself as a spirit in certain ways. And here it says that he comes in the form of a serpent. And it says the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Now think with me here. Here comes Satan on the scene and notice right away the terms that the Holy Spirit begins to give us to describe Satan. Two things we find here in verse 1. First of all, it says that he's a serpent. Now, whenever I think of a serpent, I typically think of things like sneaky, dangerous, poisonous. Okay, these are the connotations that come to our mind when we think of a serpent-like creature. 
And these are, of course, very fitting descriptions. And we find Satan multiple places in 2 Corinthians 11 and Revelation 12 and 20 and other places referred to as a serpent. We also, in 1 Peter 5, have him referred to as a roaring lion. So we begin to get the idea of what some of Satan's nature and workings are like. And it also tells us in verse 1, that it says here in the New King James, anyway, that he was cunning. Your translation may say crafty. Same kind of idea. It indicates that he was someone who was subtle and clever. Someone who was trickery, involved in trickery, and that works in ways in order to be able to deceive. He's a cunning, crafty, and conniving worker. And interesting, Paul tells the Corinthian believers in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 when he was concerned about them, he says, I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And when Paul was writing to the Corinthians, he said in the same way that the devil came on the scene back in the book of Genesis originally and he came on the scene and it says... He deceived Eve by his craftiness, by his trickery, his cunningness. He says, in the same way, I hope that your minds, because that's where she was deceived at in the mind, that your minds, he said, would not be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And again, take notice. You don't see any indication here that when Satan or the devil here comes on the scene, that Eve seems freaked out and running away. Okay, most... You know, as a guy, if I see a snake, I I'm, I get a little freaked out. I don't want to, I I don't like snakes. I don't know many women who like snakes unless they're you know really into animals. But it's more probably of the rarity than the norm. And you don't see Eve here freaked out. She seems rather comfortable and okay talking to the devil. So whatever form he is in, it's very sneaky. It's very crafty. Now that's very important because a lot of characters and and foolish pictures and ideas we have of the devil today. You know, they picture him like this guy on the back of a tuna can, right, with, with the, 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 the cape and, and the pitchfork, and he's got the pointy black goatee and the ha, 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 you know. And who in the world would listen to somebody like that? I mean, as soon as you look at somebody like you, that's not the way the devil operates. The devil's not obvious. He operates by trickery. He comes in a way that's very deceiving and very cunning and very crafty so that he might deceive our minds. He appears in a way whereby we seem that we shouldn't be concerned, and then he gradually baits the hook until he ultimately pulls that hook and reels us in in the way that he works. Now, again, verse 1, the first time that we find the devil's voice. Three times in the Bible you find the devil speaking. Here in Genesis chapter 3 is the first time you find the devil speaking. The second time you find him speaking is in Job chapter 1. And the third time you find him speaking is in the Gospels. Matthew 4 is the one place we find it in Matthew's Gospel, and we find the same account in the other Gospels. Remember, that's where the devil comes to Jesus himself and is tempting him in the wilderness, it tells us. Interesting, the first time we find the devil speaking in Genesis chapter 3, he's slandering God to man. The second time we find the devil speaking is in Job chapter 1, and there he is slandering man to God. And then the last time we find him speaking is his ultimate downfall, where there he is coming against God, the God-man, God in flesh, trying to, by trickery, deceive and cause him to fall, but yet ultimately he recognizes that he can't tempt Jesus, and Jesus overcomes him by the word of God. And here's what's interesting. 
Here in Genesis chapter 3, and when you get to Matthew's gospel chapter 4, when the devil is launching his best efforts, and you better believe they were his best efforts because this was the God-man. It wasn't just man in his created form. This was the God-man, Jesus Christ. And the devil uses the same three tactics against Jesus that he does all the way back in the Garden of Eden with the very first man. My point being this, is we need to learn the devil's playbooks. See, his methods are very consistent. In Genesis chapter 3, he goes with questioning and challenging with the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life and challenging the word of God and trying to deceive the mind by causing questions and doubts and so forth. When you get into Matthew's gospel and he's face to face with the best man, perfect man, Jesus Christ, he's using the same arsenal. In other words, he doesn't have any new tricks. He hasn't come up with anything better. He's still using the same thing. And what great encouragement it is to know that, because to recognize if we understand how he works, Paul says in the Corinthian epistle, we're not ignorant of his devices. If we learn the devil's devices, we don't have to be deceived by the devil, and we can overcome in the same way that Jesus, our master, did through the power of his spirit working in our lives, just recognizing he uses the same tactic. And know what he does in verse 1. We see him speaking, and what is he doing right away? He's causing and raising questions regarding the truths and the ways of God. You see what he does first of all? He comes to the woman, he says, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? What's he doing? He's questioning the word of God. First thing you see the devil doing, questioning the word of God, potentially questioning even the authorship of the word of God. Had, are you sure it was God that indeed said you should not eat of every tree of the garden? Are, are you, are you sure, were you there with Adam when he gave the word to him originally? Are you sure indeed that that was definitely God who was the author of that statement? Are you sure maybe your husband might not have made that up and, and maybe he's being a little controlling and archaic and, 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 he, and he got a little too you know, you know, overexcited with some of these things? And so, are you sure God's really the one that said that? And he questions the authorship of the very word and commands of God. And, and it's the exact same thing the devil's doing today. He seeks to raise questions in people's minds regarding the word of God. Is it really God that said that? I mean, come on. I mean, that's been translated over so many years. Are we really sure that God said that? Are we really certain? And he seeks to get people to question the ways of God and to question the truths of God, to challenge things in people's minds regarding God. He, he begins to raise questions. Listen, this is what the devil does. He wants to make people question things. He wants to make people question the truths of God's word. He wants to make you question the promises of God's word. Did God really indeed say that? Are you really sure that's what he meant by that? And, and can you really count on that? And he wants to get us to question what the word of God says and to question its authenticity and its authority. And he wants to get us to begin, interesting, to begin to sort of dialogue in a conversation over what God's Word says. And it's very interesting to me that, you know, over the recent years, the, you know, ludicrous movement of the emergent church and some of these, well, you know, we, we, we get a little too overexcited about the authority and the authenticity of, of the Scriptures. I think the better thing to do, the emergent church says, is we, we need to just enter into conversation. And we need to dialogue and, and and ask questions and think through, really, what really does the book mean and what really does it say? Well, listen, that's as old as the book of Genesis. 
That's what the devil did at the very beginning, at the downfall of man. He said, hey, let's get into a conversation. Eve, what do you think? How about we have some question and answer time about the Word of God? Let's have a conversation. Let's not expound and exposit what the Scripture says and just exegete it for what's there. Let's have a conversation about it. Let's talk and ask questions and think through what it may or may not say and whether that's really a part that God wrote and maybe that's not a part. That's what the devil does. And his tactics don't change. Recognize that when you struggle with questions about God's word and about God's ways, realize the source of where that's coming from. That's the devil. Whether it's in your own mind or whether it's through the comments of college professors or school teachers or people on your job site or critics of the Bible, realize the source of that. As God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden, he says. And the woman said to the serpent, and this is the first mistake, you don't dialogue with the devil. <laughs> when the devil asks a question, don't answer. You know, My motto is, is when the devil knocks on the door, you ask Jesus to answer it. You don't go answer the door. Just don't dialogue. You don't, you, don't, you don't engage. Well, she engages. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, very interesting what she does here. She here begins to misquote and to mishandle the accuracy of what the word of God and the commands were. Again, take notice back in chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, God said... Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. Now she says in verse 2, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. Wait a minute, what about the fact that God said, no, you may freely eat of anything you want. In other words, the generosity of God, the benevolence of God, the good. You may freely eat of anything. She just says, well, of the trees we can eat. And, and what's she doing? She's retracting, she's taking something away from what the word of God says. And it's never good to take away from the word of God. Oh, it's just one word. <laughs> if it's inspired, it's more than just one word. It's God's word. Jesus said, you know, not one yod or one tittle. In other words, one, not even one stroke or an apostrophe will pass away. It's, if it's inspired, it's God's word. We don't have any right taking anything out of God's word. And whenever we begin to take away from God's word and try and change it to modify something that we believe differently or to accommodate our preferences, we're taking away from the word of God. And it's never good. And the devil wants to do that. He wants to get people to take away from the word of God. Let's dumb it down. Let's change this. Let's delete a word. Let's change things around. Also, notice in verse 3, she then turns around and she adds to the word of God. It says, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of a garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, again, we read back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, that God said, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God said nothing about touching it. God didn't say anything about touching it. Now, did she just make that up on her own, again, because of their, you know, the, the inaccuracy of knowing the word of God and what it really says? Or was this the mistake of something where maybe she was hanging around the tree before and Adam was saying, Eve, would you get away from that? Well, what's the big deal? And he goes, look, just don't touch the thing. And she, oh, okay, we can't eat it or we can't touch it. I, I don't know. The point is, what's she doing? She's adding to the word of God. And it's never good to add to the word of God any more than it is to take away from the word of God. And when we start trying to add things to what the scripture says, then we're perverting the gospel of Christ and we're beginning to distort, again, the sufficiency of the word of God. God's word alone is sufficient enough. We don't need to add to the word of God. 
We don't need to implement extra things and, and, and spruce it up and, and make it more relevant for a different generation. Look, God's word is always relevant because people have always been sinful and Jesus has always been the Savior. People may wear different clothes, they may listen to different music, and, and I understand the package, but the reality is, is we don't need to change or add and spice things up to make it more relevant. The devil wants to do that, and ultimately that just deteriorates the word of God when he seeks to do these kind of things and deceive people. Verse 4, then the serpent said to the woman, look what he says to her, he says, you will not surely die for God knows in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open. That's what will happen, he says. And you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So what does the devil do now in verse 4? In verse 4, he out and out just lies now. He's not just challenging God's word. Now he just flat out contradicts it. And he just flat out lies. What does Jesus say in John chapter 8 regarding the devil? He says that the devil is the father of of lies. And when he speaks a lie, he's speaking of his own resources. And here the devil just totally challenges exactly what the word of God says. God said, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And God says in verse, I mean, the, the devil says here in verse four, you won't surely die. In other words, he's challenging the truths of the consequences of breaking the word of God. God says, look, if you violate my word, this is the consequence. And what is the devil saying now? Look, that, I mean, that, that's, I know that's what God said. But he really wouldn't allow that to happen to you. And he's causing Eve now, as he wants to do to other people, to question the truth of the word of God being fulfilled, that God will keep his word. So he says, look, those consequences, they won't really happen. And see, many a times, this is the lie that the devil feeds to people. The devil feeds the lie to people when they're determining whether or not they're going to obey the scripture, he says in the same way, listen, as he says to Eve, you won't surely die. I mean, I mean, something, I mean, something a little bit might happen, but I mean, you won't die. You don't really think that God's going to accurately hold to exactly what his word says. And what does the devil do? The devil does the same thing today. I mean, that's not really going to happen. You don't think that exactly what the scripture says, I mean, there won't really be a consequence. And so God tells the, you know, the, the married couple, well, listen, I mean, I know that the Bible says that God hates divorce, but I mean, just, I know it gives the indication that it just ravages and destroys the whole family. But listen, I mean, it's not, it's not really going to be that bad. It's not really going to be that bad. And, and whatever it is, the devil seeks to convey the idea in our mind that that won't really happen. And people buy into that. And then after he baits the hook, then he yanks it in their mouth once they commit to it as they're experiencing the consequence because God will honor his word. He honors it in its promises. And listen, he honors it in its consequences. The Bible says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. And what a man sows, he shall also reap. And we can't sow to the flesh and not think we're going to reap corruption. If we sow to the flesh, the Bible says we will reap. If we sow to the wind, we'll reap the whirlwind, the Bible tells us. And that's so important for us to realize. We want to sow to the flesh sometimes and pray for crop failure. Oh, Lord, I, I know I did it, but... 
listen, there's forgiveness, there's repentance, and God gives us the grace to deal with the consequences, but we need to take the word of God at face value. God gives us his warnings as deterrents because he doesn't want to see us experience the consequences. So when God puts a consequence in his word for a command or something we're to obey, to do or not do, take it seriously. Don't listen to the devil's lie. It's one of the greatest deceptions that he baits people to fall into and then they enter into something and then the consequence comes down and they play with the matches and the house burns down and the reason is because they bought into the lie of the devil saying it won't really happen. It won't really happen. If you sleep with your boyfriend, you won't really get pregnant. And he he feeds the lie into the mind of people and causes them to fall into the traps that he does. Verse 5, he's even questioning sort of the nature. So God just knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open. That's what it is. And you'll be like God knowing good and evil. In other words, he's sort of questioning God's nature and God's goodness. He's saying the reality is, is God's just kind of a little jealous. And he's got a power trip. And, and, And... He's making Eve here want to question the benevolence and the goodness of God, saying, well, he's not looking out for your best interest. He just doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to experience something, and therefore he's, he's being Victorian and archaic, and he's trying to make you live a constricted life. No, he's putting boundaries in our lives because he loves us. Because he loves us. Not because he's trying to restrict us and keep us from something. They're there to help us. To stay in the place of God's blessing and God's best. Well, verse 6 says, When the woman saw that the tree, notice, was good for food, and that it was also pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit, and she ate, and she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. So what do we see happening now? She's making decisions by being led by the dictates of the desires of her own physical appetites. It says here very clearly that that fruit there, it says, it was good for food, so it was desirable to eat, apparently. It was pleasant to the eyes, it was very appealing and attractive, and it was a tree desirable to make one wise, and therefore she took it and she ate. Take notice, temptation is appealing. It's desirable, it's attractive, it's enjoyable. The Bible says sin is pleasurable for a season. Listen, let's be real candid, not try and play super spiritual. Sin's fun. That's why we like to do it. Sin is desirable. There are things about sin that are pleasant and desirable and that are attractive. That's why we are drawn to it in our flesh. But the Bible says it's pleasurable for a season. It's momentary satisfaction, it's momentary pleasure, it's momentary enjoyment, but then when the consequence comes, we realize that it wasn't worth the moment of pleasure, whether it's saying something we shouldn't have said. You know, again, don't tell me when you're in a, you know, an argument with someone or somebody says something, you know, yeah, 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 that it doesn't feel good to say, well, yeah, 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 right? <laughs> it feels good to do that. I desire when you, yeah, 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 me, I want to, yeah, 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 you. That, that's what I desire to do. That's what feels good. It doesn't feel good to restrain myself and use self-control and bless those who curse. And pre- that doesn't feel good. It feels better to do the wrong thing. You know, the reason why people indulge in substance abuse. Why do people get drunk? Why do people get high? Because it feels good. Because they like it. That's why they do it. Why do people have you know, extramarital affairs? Why, why do people have sex outside of the boundaries of marriage? Because it's enjoyable. 
All the things that we do that are sinful, we do them because they're desirable and they're pleasant. That's how temptation works. The important thing is that we cannot be driven to make decisions by the, the desires that are within us. The Bible says that the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. That's what's represented here. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. That's what was driving her. The Bible says those things are passing away, but he who does the will of God abides forever. So she's compelled by temptation. She's persuaded by the devil, but the devil can't control her. Listen, it's so important to see this. The devil can tempt, and he's a great tempter, but the devil can't make us do it. I, I can't stand when people say, the devil made me do it. No, he didn't. He did a good job tempting you. He's a great salesman, but he doesn't make us do anything. James 1 says that we you know, sin when we're drawn away by our own desire. And then we embrace it and it conceives and it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Notice it says here in the text, verse 6, that she was tempted, but it says she took of its fruit and ate. She took. She chose. She made a conscious decision, just like we all do. She made a willful decision. She took it for herself at a certain point. She made the willful act and she yielded to temptation rather than resisting temptation. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has seized me in you except as is common to all men. And God is faithful. He won't let us be tempted beyond what we are able. But with the temptation, he provides a way of escape so that we can bear up under it. What was her way of escape? She should have quoted the word of God in the same way that Jesus ultimately did when he overcame. But she laid down the sword of the Spirit and instead she said, I'll take this one on my own. I'm going to lay down the word of God and what it says. Instead, I'm going to dialogue with the devil and debate my way out of this. And ultimately, she found herself weakened and yielded to temptation. And notice as well in verse 6, it says, And then she, after she partook herself, she gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Now, please take notice of something here. I want you to notice, again, from the very fall of humanity, what do you have happening in Genesis chapter 3? You already have in the marriage relationship a role reversal taking place. God's design and intention. God creates man. He designs the woman to come alongside, to complete, and to be a helper to man. God intends for a man to be the head of his home, to provide leadership and direction, and for the wife to come alongside and to support and to allow him to lead and to come alongside of that. And what's taking place here? Who's in the lead and who's directing and who's initiating and who's the responder? She's leading, she's directing, she partakes, she gives it to him, he follows her lead, and the whole world falls apart. True? Now, I don't know. We could speculate, and I think any one of the factors could fit. Is the problem that she and her independent spirit is coming out from under her husband's covering and is getting a little too independent? She's wandered off and she's doing her thing. And because she's left from under the covering of her husband and thinking, I don't need him and he's a knucklehead anyway. And, and, and I'm more spiritual than he is. Apparently, Eve was very spiritual because you see her dialogue. And she's desirous of, wow, I can be more like God. And by nature, women are very spiritual. Women, by nature, I think, are a lot more spiritual than men. But that also can be a tremendous danger. Men tend to be a lot more logical and pragmatic and many times are more dull spiritually, but also it's a safeguard because men kind of usually go and women are capable of extreme highs, but also extreme lows and extreme east, but also extreme west. And that's how people and 
can get into trouble in spiritual areas. And maybe here she's out from under her husband's covering, she's being independent, and she gets into something she shouldn't, and then she takes the lead and just sort of, here, you eat this too, and she, she passes it off to him. My other question is this, where's Adam? Why is Adam so passive? Either Adam's not around and he's uninvolved, and many men are guilty of that. They're not around and they're detached and they're uninvolved and they wonder why things fall apart in their homes because they're not engaged. They're uninvolved. They're detached. They're not there with their wives, providing a covering and providing the connection that they should, and therefore they make their wives vulnerable to the devil's destructive measures in their life. Or, by chance, is Adam right there it says she gave to her husband and he ate. Did she have to go give it to him or was he right there and he was just totally passive and he was quiet and he basically was a, a jelly belly backbone and he didn't do nothing. So he was just sitting there like a passive, docile little boy instead of a man with a backbone recognizing his role and responsibility in his life and in his family. Either way, whether it's all those components involved or one of those elements, we can find out when we get to heaven, but those are all contributing factors to people's personal family and worlds falling apart. In the same way it happened from the... And the devil will always attack in the exact same ways. The devil wants to destroy families. And here we see him doing it from the very beginning. And notice, one of the things they were guilty of humanly is there's this role reversal. They've inverted the roles. She's leading... He's responding, she gave to him and she ate. Again, the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy 2 and other places, she was deceived, Adam transgressed. She was deceived by the devil. Adam sinned with his eyes wide open because God gave him the command directly. He knew better. She wasn't there when the command came forth. The devil tricked her, but Adam knew exactly what he was doing and in willful rebellion, they both now enter into this. Verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. So when this happens, notice instantaneously something takes place. They become conscious of guilt and shame. Again, spiritual death sets in here. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. They partook. Do they drop dead on the spot? No, they don't. Death enters the world, but they don't drop dead immediately. Well, physical death entered. Yes, it tells us that at the end of the chapter, from dust you were taken to dust you shall return. Adam becomes a mortal being. They're blocked from the tree of life. But also spiritual death happens at this point. Because all of a sudden now, at one point, it said back at the end of Genesis 2, they were naked and they were unashamed. Again, I think it's very possible. The Bible says that God clothes himself with garments of light. Maybe Adam and Eve were clothed with some form of light, and now the light goes out. And all of a sudden, instead of being naked and unashamed, now their eyes are opened and they knew they were naked. They feel uncovered and exposed now. And it says, so they sew fig leaves together to make themselves coverings. What they're trying to, what? They're, they're conscious of their guilt. When you sin, you feel guilty. They're conscious of their guilt. They're ashamed of what they've done that they know is wrong. God's created a conscience. And, and they're trying to cover their guilt. They're trying to cover their shame. They sew together fig leaves. Here's the first attempt in the Bible at religion. This is religion. It's man trying to cover his own guilt. It's mankind trying to cover up his own shame in the presence of God because he knows what he did is wrong. And he's trying to cover up his shamefulness and cover up his sinfulness and his guilt before God. And that's what religion is. 
Rel and Gary, it's what the original word is, to relink. It's man's efforts through I do these traditions, I, I go to church, I kneel this many times, I say this many of these, I do this, I that, I give this much money, I, I read this many chapters, I, I follow all these formalities and, and rules and rituals, and I'm trying to weigh out the scales and cover myself and cover my bases to make myself right with God again. That's what religion is. The Bible teaches that doesn't work. God wants relationship, and only him giving us his righteousness works. Well, they're trying to cover themselves. Verse 8 says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife, notice, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. What are they doing now? They used to walk in perfect harmony and fellowship with God. It seems every day God maybe came at a certain point, and God walked together with them. Man had regular fellowship with God. That was the original plan. Walking together with God, harmony, talking to God, enjoying God's presence. And now it says once sin enters into their lives, now it says they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. At one time they enjoyed the presence of the Lord. But now sin is making them draw back from the presence of the Lord. And sin always does that. makes us want to hide from the presence of the Lord. So they hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Shows you how dumb sin makes us too. I mean, how smart is that? Here's God. Eve, get behind that tree. I'll get behind this one. <laughs> Isn't it amazing what sin does to your mind too? What people, the way people think. You know, have you ever backslidden before or talking to somebody who's living in sin or backslidden and they say things and you're just thinking, what are you thinking? Well, look at Adam and Eve. Look at the parents. Eve, God's coming. You get behind the mulberry tree. I'll get behind the sycamore. You know, and, and they're hiding from God as if somehow God's not going to see them. Verse 9 says, Then the Lord God called to Adam and said, Where are you? Now, I don't think that's the sound of an angry police officer. Where are you, Adam? What did you do? I think that's the, the heart of a, of a broken, loving father who's lost fellowship with one of his children and therefore is looking to seek to reconnect. And notice verse 9, what happens? Sin enters the picture, and what's happening? God is seeking man. Man's not seeking God. God is seeking man. God comes looking for them as they're hiding from God and trying to stay away from his presence. And the Lord God calls to Adam. He says, Adam, where are you? Interesting. First question in the Bible. God asking man, where are you? Where are you? Where are you spiritually? Again, it wasn't a, God doesn't ask questions for information. It wasn't as if God didn't know. Again, they're hiding behind trees. It wasn't as if God said, where are you? You know, kind of like, you know, Marco Polo, Marco Polo. You know, it's not that God was looking for information. He was asking a question for their own personal examination, he was trying to withdraw a confession out of them. He was making them search their own soul in the condition of where they were, saying, where are you spiritually? Where are you, Adam? Something happened. Where are you in relationship to what we once had? And he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Again, sin brings fear and anxiety. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? Again, God's asking questions. What's God trying to do? He's trying to draw a confession 
out of Adam. He says, who told you that you were naked? And he says to them right away, have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? There's Adam's chance to do what? Confess. Take ownership. You know, whenever we blow it and we sin against God, God gives us that opportunity right away. What did you do, Tony? Did you do it? And God gives, here's the perfect opportunity for Adam to say, yes, I did it. And to take ownership, to be confessing, to call it what is, to repent. Adam, did you eat of the tree I commanded you not to eat? Verse 12, look at this. And the man said, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. He says, did you eat, Adam? I didn't eat, but the woman? By the way, God, which the woman which you gave me, everything was really good. This whole garden, tend it, keep it, and then you started talking about it. it's not good for me to be alone, and let me make you a little helper, and so you and her might want to work this thing out here. I'll be over here, you know, fishing back in the river again. The woman which, so what's he doing? Making excuses. Blame shifting right away. This is exactly what people do when, they, when we enter into sin, right? We make, instead of confessing, we make excuses. And we start to blame shift. We, it's, it's, you know, God, it's, it's this spouse. If I didn't have to be married to this person, then I wouldn't be like this. God, if I wasn't married to him or I wasn't married to her, then I wouldn't be like this. You let me marry him. And that's why I'm like this. And not only do we want to blame shift, we even want to blame God. God, you're in control of everything. You let me be married to him. You let me live in this home. You let me raise in this family. And that's why I am the way I am, God. Not tragic enough when we blame shift with people, but Adam and Eve, Adam's actually blaming God. That's really tragic when we blame God for our sin and make excuses rather than confess. God, verse 13, turns and says to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the devil made me do it. She, she learns well. <laughs> the serpent deceived me. Now she's following her husband. <laughs> now she's following the serpent deceived me and I ate. Well, verse 14 now through 19, basically, this isn't again the judgment of God. We see the curse and these are just the inevitable consequences of sin now. Sin has consequences. The Lord God says to the serpent, because you've done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more the beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, very interesting. Verse 15 seems to me the glimmers of potentially a first messianic prophecy of God bringing Jesus Christ to bring redemption to the problem of man's sin. Because God says here, the seed of the woman and the seed of the devil. And he says, between your seed, verse 15, and her seed. Now think about this. In the reproductive process, a woman does not produce seed. Right? The woman supplies the egg. So when God says her seed, very likely, I believe, there's an inference there to the virgin birth, ultimately, that would come as God would put the Spirit of God as the seed into the womb of the woman to bring redemption. Romans 5 tells us that everything that Adam destroyed, Jesus reconciled and reunited. And her seed... The virgin birth, Jesus Christ, would ultimately be someone who, notice, would bruise the head even though his heel would be bruised by the devil. Again, a, a, a heel wound is a temporary wound. A head wound is a mortal wound. And Jesus, the Bible says, came and was manifested to destroy the works of the devil. 
And it seems here, again, I think a first glimmer of a messianic promise of salvation through Jesus. Verse 16, to the woman, he said, I'll greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. And any of you who've had children understand that. I've watched, I emphasize watched, the process three times. And I don't understand at that point. At some point, it wasn't painful and difficult to have children, but... Part of the consequences that, you know, there would be pain and difficulty and conception and bringing birth to children. And ultimately, there would be measures at time of pain, God says, as the result of childbirth. That sometimes it would result in great pain, in great sorrow, physically, even emotionally, I think. Part of the curse upon humanity. And he says, and your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. So again, seeming to speak of of a struggle there that would always exist then as the result of the fall and sin. There would always be a struggle between the marriage relationship. That there would be this desire there maybe for the wife to be in rulership, but yet as the husband would rule over her, she would have to deal now with, guess what? A sinful, imperfect husband who is going to lead and rule over her in the home. And that's difficult, and that causes a struggle. And there's always, because of the sinful nature within us, that constant tendency and friction, whereby, as the husband seeks to lead as an imperfect, sinful man, he doesn't lead perfectly, he has flaws in his nature and in his ways, and in the same way, it's a constant struggle. I don't care how godly a woman, it's a constant struggle to be submissive and to let your husband lead. It's a constant struggle. It's a part of the curse. That's why that tension exists in the marriage relationship. It's part of the curse and the fall and the struggle that we deal with in marriage. And he said to Adam, because you've heeded the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree, says, which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Again, take notice, what was Adam's mistake? God says, you heeded the voice of your wife instead of heeding my command to you. Again, whenever we listen to the voice of someone else, rather than listening to the word of God, that always brings major mistakes and tremendous consequences. And that was Adam's direct disobedience. He heeded the voice of his wife instead of obeying the command of God to him directly. And therefore God told Adam, Cursed is the ground for your sake, and toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the herb of the field, and in the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So Adam, death has now entered in. You'll return to the ground from which you were created from, the dust of the earth. But he says, during your existence on earth, remember God told man to work and to tend the field, but yet God says now part of the curse for man is not work. Okay, guys, so don't get the idea, well, work's part of the curse. That's why I don't work. Don't get that attitude, okay? <laughs> That's part of the curse, man. That's why I don't work. No, work was something God created in Genesis 2 before sin ever entered the picture. The curse is that work would be difficult. That God says, by the sweat of your brow, and it would be a struggle, and the ground wouldn't be as productive. In other words, things could have been way more easy and prosperous for us, probably so we'd have more time to have fellowship and relationship with God. But now as a result of sin, 
The ground wouldn't yield as good. God said it will produce thorns and thistles. And God says, now you're going to have to struggle. Part of your existence on this earth is you're going to struggle to eke a living out of this life. And you're going to deal with the frustrations and the hassles of having to work hard and, and labor and sweat just to be able to get by in your existence on this earth. He says, until the day that you return back to the dust. In verse 20, Adam, notice, called his wife's name Eve. Up to this point, she was just the woman. But now he calls her name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Interesting, the word Eve means life giver or living. I think here Adam is giving a testimony of his faith. That he heard what God said that her seed would crush the head of the devil's authority. And I think Adam, as a very wise man, said, you know what? We blew it. We failed. And we're going to deal with the consequences of our sin. And what we did was wrong, but you know what? God's given us hope. And he'll give us the grace to deal with our consequences. And we need to take ownership for what we've done. And he names his wife Eve because he realized, you know what? God has promised to solve the problem that we've made. And he calls his wife now Eve, life giver, because he believed through Eve, ultimately, there would be a miraculous provision from God of salvation for the sin of humanity. I think this is a testimony of Adam's faith by calling his wife that very name. Also for Adam, it says, and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Take notice of that. What did they do? They sewed together fig leaves and made their own coverings. Religion. They were covering themselves. We're sinful before God. We're ashamed. We're guilty. We, we feel ashamed and guilty and we try and hide and cover up our guilt and sin before a holy God because we sense our wrongdoing when we do things wrong. And God rejects their works. God rejects their own endeavors to cover themselves. And verse 21 says that God made coverings for them. Their coverings they made weren't sufficient. But now God makes and supplies coverings that are sufficient. And it says the coverings were made of tunics of skin. How do you get tunics of skin? You have to kill animals. Here you have already, I believe, the first innocent substitute being sacrificed and no doubt the shedding of blood as they realize an innocent substitute now has to die and blood has to be shed in order for you to be properly clothed and covered before God for your sinfulness. God says your works are not sufficient, but a blood sacrifice, that will be sufficient. I think that ties into what we'll see in Genesis 4 next time. Here you have already the shedding of blood, of course, foreshadowing how God sacrifices his son Jesus Christ and God makes us righteous. God clothes us with the righteousness of Jesus. We don't make ourselves right before God. God needs to make us righteous through the shed righteous blood of his son Jesus Christ, ultimately foreshadowing what he would do. In verse 22, the Lord God said, Behold, the man's become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever... Therefore, the Lord God, it says, sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground which he was taken. So he drove out the man. It seems there was a hesitancy there that God had to actually drive him away, no doubt because he was probably broken hearted, having lost relationship with God. 
He drove him out and he placed cherubim, angelic creatures, at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way, notice again, to guard the way to the tree of life. Again, it tells us up in verse 22 that once God realized what happened, it says that he needed to keep them from partaking of the tree of life whereby they might live forever. Now, I don't claim to have a full understanding of what that means and how the tree of life enabled them to live forever, but the word of God says it, so I believe it. There was something unique about a life-giving quality to that tree of life that existed in the original creation whereby God said we need to keep them from that tree of life which they were allowed to eat from before because God says lest they eat from it and live forever. So God banishes them from the garden and he guards them from going back to partake of it. And the reason why is because God did not want man, it seems, to remain in that sinful fallen condition forever. God wanted man to be in the condition that he was in and not eat of it and permanently, it seems, maybe fix himself in that sinful condition. Why? Because God had a plan for redemption. Jesus, the Lamb of God who would be slain ultimately to take away the sin of the world and God in his love already guarding man, even in his mistakes. Isn't it wonderful? We make a mess of things. You know, We make mistakes. Just like Adam and Eve, right? We can so relate to this because this is us. We do all the same things. We disregard the word of God. At times we listen to the deception and the lies of the devil and he makes us question and doubt things and we buy into the doubts and we question God's nature and we question God's word and we flirt with sin and we're the very thing God tells us to stay away with, away from like Eve, we're, don't touch that. Well, what? Don't touch what? You know, and, and here we are, we're hanging around the tree and we do all the same things. In our marriages, we invert the roles and we operate backwards in the way God intends us and all the same dynamics and we experience consequences and, and a lot of times we hedge on confessing, we want to blame shift, we want to make excuses and then the amazing thing is, is God, God allows all that to go on. He says, where are you? And he starts seeking us and drawing us back and instilling faith in us to realize, listen, yeah, you made a mess, but I still love you. And I got a plan for you. And if you'll just yield to me, even in your failure, just yield to me right there in your failure. And I got a plan to solve all the problems. If you'll take my solution, I can turn it around and solve all the problems. Man, the greatest atom bomb that ever went off in that garden, God solved in one simple step with his son Jesus. How amazing to have that hope and to realize it's all found in Jesus. Amen? Let's stand. Let's close in prayer together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what it teaches us and shows us. Lord, thank you for this chapter to allow us to see things about the devil and his tactics. We know that he's the enemy of our soul, Lord, and that he does want to keep us from right relationship with you. And Lord, I pray the things that you've spoken to us in your word tonight, the truths that we've heard, that those truths would set us free and that we might walk in the truth of your word, that we might not listen to the lies of the devil and that Jesus, no matter where we're at, no matter how many times that we've failed, that you'd allow us to know that where sin abounds, your grace abounds so much more. 
And we thank you for that hope. Help us to take hold of that, Lord, to just fall in submission to you, no matter how many times or how far we've failed, to know that you are able to restore all the years that the locusts may have eaten away from sinful actions or sinful choices. Thank you for hope, Lord. Would you instill that in our hearts this night as we walk forward in this week? And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen.